Welcome to the Shelf Media Podcast. I'm Margaret Brown. Today I'm talking to Karen A. Weil, the author of several science fiction books, who's also an attorney whose latest book is nonfiction, Closest to the Fire, A Writer's Guide to Law and Lawyers. I think your book is fascinating, and I'm looking forward to talking Thank to you, you. about it. So, so you're an attorney. Yes. And that's been your professional career, right? Yes. Uh, what, straight out of school, pretty much, I started practicing I, originally with law firms and then doing sort of short-term freelance jobs. Then I got an offer from a law school classmate to share her job as a staff attorney on the California Court of Appeal and would probably have stayed right there if I hadn't met my husband who hated California. And <laughs> so I ended up with an appellate practice in Indiana. And what made you want to get into law initially? Well, I was one of many English majors that had no idea how to enter the real world. Sure. And I liked writing, although I had, at that point in college, pretty much given up on fiction until decades later. Mm-hmm. But I still liked to write, and I was interested in both logic and psychology. And I thought law would bring those three threads together. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I read that you hadn't written a story even when you were little. Uh, well, I wrote a, I wrote a novel of sorts, if a hundred two-page chapters could be called a novel, when wow. I was 10. Wow. Uh, and, in fact, my initial ambition was to be not just a novelist, but the youngest published novelist ever. I had already failed at that by the age of 10 because some British girl that got published at the age of 9. What was your book about? It was called, and the title had an error that I didn't realize at the time. You were 10. Called, you were 10. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was called An Autobiography of My Dragon and a Little About Me. Oh, so wow. Obviously should have been biography. But right. uh, anyway, it was a very weird combination of a uh, Call of the Wild ripoff with a dragon and a bunch of other things. This dragon went through a number of role changes from pet to foster parent to sled dragon to I don't remember what else. So you had a big imagination and a lot of creativity. Did law change It didn't smother me permanently. My writing style has changed, even from the end of law school. I, some years ago, found my third-year paper, which was more conversational than what I later would have written in anything professional, and I probably a little easier in cadence and so forth. It's not just having been a lawyer, but I have now lived almost 30 years with a very, very bright fellow who is self-educated in a number of fields and has a vocabulary that dwarfs mine. So I think I have a style that has been affected by both being a lawyer for a long time and living with him. Right. So you've written several fiction yeah. books. I have published five novels, and I have now two more in the pipeline. And when did you decide to start writing, and when do you find time to do it? Well, as a child, I wanted to write novels. I gave up on that at about age 14, and then tried poetry and short stories and then put aside pretty much the whole creative side of writing for some years. Started writing picture book manuscripts when I was pregnant with my older daughter. Mm -hmm. 
did haiku on and off and so forth, I didn't really come back to fiction and to novels until that same older daughter was a senior in high school, and she discovered National Novel Writing Month. Mm. And she managed to do it and to finish her 50,000-word quota in spite of uh, not only her high school schedule, but you know, going and seeing colleges and such. Wow. And she did it again the next year, and that's the year that I did it for the first time. I thought, what the heck? I decided maybe October 28th or 29th right. that I would do it, and it's, you know, it takes place in the month of November. Right. And I said, well, you know, I'll probably drop out after a couple of days, but why not give it a try? I had only the vaguest notion of what the book was going to be about, a few notes about scenes that might be included, no idea where the book would end, where the story would go. And, and, and what year was that? Um, I did the writing in, I think, 2010 and published the book in 2011. Wow. So uh, what was it like to do National Novel Writing Month? It was wonderful. It is very good for anyone who's been getting in their own way. And I'd been doing that since about the age of 20. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'd been too self-critical. I'd been wanted to know how everything would go before it happened. And with the pace you have to keep up for National Novel Writing Month or NaNo or NaNoWriMo or the short mm -hmm. Version. For Nano, you have to write an average of 1,667 words a day. And that means you don't have time to self edit and second guess. Mm -hmm. And that means your subconscious can come out to play. So it was a wonderful experience, not only because I was finally doing what I had you know, once thought I was born to do, but because I could keep finding surprises. There was a scene that I thought I had thrown in just for a little set decoration, which turned out to provide the platform for a major revelation later mm. in the book, one that I didn't know was coming. <laughs> so what's the title of that book and what's it about? That is Twin Bread, and the tagline is, Can Interspecies Diplomacy Begin in the Womb? The premise is that there's a human colony on a planet with its own intelligent species and that communication has never been good, that not just a matter of not understanding each other's language well, but more basic issues and conflicts are becoming more severe. And in this situation, a scientist named Mara Cadell proposes a somewhat radical solution namely that host mothers of both species carry fraternal twins of both species mm. and that they be raised in a project, in an environment that would help them learn to be mediators with the hope that the bond between twins would at least partially overcome the gap between species. And so that's the starting point. Right. And there are, of course, all sorts of things that don't go quite according to at least some of the people's plans. So that is now my only series. I published a second book in, I think, 20, well, 2012 or 2013, I've lost track, uh, called Reach, and I am now editing the third book, which doesn't have a title yet. Great. So the mediation ties into your interest in law. Yes. I actually took mediation training once upon a time and was 
available as a mediator briefly before the requirements changed, and I decided I wasn't going to pursue it. But I'm very interested in issues of communication and relationships and dispute resolution. So, yeah, that came from my personal and professional background. So how is writing your novel different in terms of your process from writing a brief or something? Uh, with a brief, I start with where I want to go and with you know some legal hooks to hang an argument on. They've gotten more similar over time because I eventually, rather later than I should have, learned the importance in writing a brief of telling the story. So, because no matter what the law is, you have to make sure as best you can that the court wants to help your client, and that's about telling the story. And you have to work within constraints that the appellate system provides. But, you know, it's almost like the way a sonnet guides the creativity of a poet. You sort of channel your intent and your, you know, whatever's driving you through that form. Uh, but it's the uh, a novel can go many more places. A novel has, of course, a different purpose. I mean, I explore certain themes, but my novels are not primarily didactic or intended to persuade anyone of anything, right, whereas right. that's the essence of a brief. Sure. So you wrote your 50,000 words on that first novel, uh -huh. and then then what was the process? Then it was almost a year of editing mm -hmm. uh, in stages. I actually thought that I had something pretty good long before I really did mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, entered it in a contest and so forth and then got back to work. So that finishing on November 30th, I didn't actually put the book out there until October 15th of the following year. Right, right. And how did it evolve from that first 50,000 words? Did it change significantly or just? I added subplots. I added description, which is not something that tends to come as naturally to me. It tends mm -hmm. to come later. Mm -hmm. um, I sort of just looked at what I had and said, what else do I need? What else should this character do? You know, how can I make this flow better. I'm to some extent guessing because it's been a while since that first time. Sure, right, right. I also, I never answered one of your earlier questions, which is how do I make the time? And I have been self-employed for quite a long time now. I work out of a home office. And that means that on the one hand, there is no such thing as an evening or a weekend. But on the other hand, it's always easy to run in and write something. Just, right. which is all, and that's something where my process for writing a brief is similar to my process for writing a novel, that when an idea pops up, usually I find a place to write it down if I can't go directly to the computer, and then I can just spend anywhere from five minutes to two hours following up on it. Right, right. So your nonfiction book, Closest yeah. to the Fire, A Writer's Guide to Law and Lawyers. Tell us about that book and why you decided to write it. It started, and I don't even remember if this initial germ of an idea was mine or a blogger's, but it started with what was going to be a single guest blog post for, I believe, Indies Unlimited, about getting the details right in legal fiction. And it turned into three 
blog posts mm-hmm. that only scratched the surface. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, this is something that could be useful for writers to have a resource they can look things up in or browse through that would talk about American law. And as the book, as I was writing it and as it evolved, I saw the mission as a lot more than just preventing errors or helping people avoid errors. I saw it as showing people how many terrific, dramatic possibilities there are, not just in murder trials, but in so many different parts of the legal landscape. You've got immense story possibilities in even the driest seeming parts of the law. And so that's the mission of the book was to help people find some of those possibilities. And in fact, the book includes story ideas and ideas for story elements that are available. You know, anyone who reads the book can just take one of them and run with it. Right. It's quite in-depth. Yes. I mean, it's, it is and it isn't. One could write a whole book on any of the subsections. You know. But I did try to cover as much as I could, although the more I got into it, the more I realized I had undertaken something fairly insane in the <laughs> scope. But, yes, I try to give people a pretty good initial guided tour, as it were. And I also realized that as I was writing and editing that the book could be of interest to law students, to pre-law students, and to anyone who wants to know more about the American legal system, which can affect you in all sorts of unexpected ways. The one thing I did not want it to be, and that's one reason I did not make a last-minute change in the title to something more general, I did not want people to view it as a substitute for legal advice, because right. it is definitely not supposed to be that. Okay. So what are some of the mistakes that lay people make when writing about law in their novels? One is not to understand the difference between trials and appeals, to talk about introducing evidence on appeal, which almost never happens. Another is to assume that more cases can be tried by a jury or will be tried by a jury. That is actually the case. Most cases of all kinds in this country are tried with a judge being the one who decides what's true, not a jury. And there are a number of types of cases that cannot go to a jury. There was uh, one movie which, in an early scene, had a divorce lawyer telling a client that such and such a story would appeal to a jury. Well, you don't have juries in divorces in this country. So there's also... Uh, the sort of Perry Mason thundering cross-examination that leads the witness to break down and confess, that's extremely unlikely. It can be very entertaining and it can be very well done, but it's unlikely for numerous reasons, including that a judge won't let it go on. Mm -hmm. Someone would object to badgering the witness and the judge would shut that attorney down. Those are just a few. Right. What's an example of something in the book that might seem mundane or might be overlooked, but might be a really great germ for a story? Well, there is, for example, the way divorces used to function. Until relatively recently, we did not have what's called no-fault divorce, where just people were unhappy and they wanted to end the marriage. You had to have one person and only one person at fault. And if the facts did not line up with these requirements, it became quite common for people to put on a performance. 
for the wife to go in and under oath describe some you know, difficult experience, some ordeal of coming home and finding her husband with a lover, for example, that didn't happen. Or mm-hmm. if they were trying to be a little closer to the facts, they would hire a lover for the occasion. <laughs> and it would be pretty much up to the judge whether to notice that this was a sham or not. But judges very frequently went along. This was not very satisfactory from a public policy point of view because you're encouraging people to commit perjury, <laughs> which is a felony. Right. So no-fault divorce started to be an option in 1970, gradually became the rule, but not until 2010 did New York allow it. So uh, the Midwest was far more progressive on this than New York City. Isn't that surprising? Wow. I could give you another example, which the book did not focus on this. It's in the book, but I've subsequently realized that a very successful science fiction series was using this very dry procedural point, and that is choice of law. Choice of law is where a contract, for example, says if there's any dispute, it's going to be dealt with under the laws of Delaware or New York, something like that. And the uh, Retrieval Artist Science Fiction Series by Christine Catherine Rush grows entirely out of a choice of law issue in a universe where humans, Earth people, and many other species are interacting and doing business and therefore have to decide if someone breaks the law of another planet on that planet, does Earth law apply? Or does that planet's law apply? That's the situation from which she's got something like 14 books already. And they're fascinating. Interesting. So you like to read science fiction. You write science fiction. What interests you about science fiction? I'd have to go back to what got me into it at the age of 13 or so, which is hard to recall from this distance. Science fiction can explore innumerable human issues. The original Star Trek was one example of this. They explored issues of race and gender and you know, what makes people go to war and things like that. And it was safer because it was happening in the future and there were green-skinned people involved and so forth. Um, it, science fiction lets you explore issues and play with them and uh, it lets you sort of forecast where existing trends might go, how existing issues might mutate in the future. By now, it's sort of automatic that anything I hear on the news, say, gets filtered through a science fiction lens. And so I can, for example, one aspect of twin bread that I didn't mention before is that the scientist who comes up with the idea of this project is a womb twin survivor which means someone who had a twin who didn't make it all the way to birth. Mm -hmm. And I read an article about how close twins seemed to be in utero, how much they interacted, and how womb twin survivors often had lifelong trauma from losing that twin. And so Mara, this character, is a womb twin survivor who has maintained her twin as a sort of imaginary collaborator. Mm. and kept that fact a secret, which Mm. has shaped her personality in many ways and also 
made her more likely to think of how twins could be important in this larger context. Um, you know, I've seen various accounts over my life of conjoined twins. In my case, where that led was to wonder what would happen if you had a more advanced technology that used cloning to provide new bodies for people who had suffered life-threatening or lifestyle-changing injuries. What if one of two conjoined twins saw that procedure as a way to a separate life and the other didn't want it? That was the starting situation for division. Mm-hmm. So the only trouble sometimes is staying ahead of the technology. You know, I can sort of think what if, and by the time the book comes out, there's an answer already. Right. I mean, do you do intensive research, or is it more just like, oh, you read an article and that interests you and you kind of incorporate it into your thinking? I would say that I often have a book start in that almost casual way, but then I try to find out enough so that I will appear to know what I'm talking about, and I consult people. I happen to have a friend who's an astrophysicist, so when I needed to deal with a wormhole in one of the twin bread books, I talked to him about what would it look like, what might the experience be, but I also read a number of articles, and I cherry-picked. I chose the tentative answers that would work best with my story. Mm -hmm. So what interests you in writing about moral dilemmas? Uh, I think I'm just interested in people and how they tick. Mm -hmm. Um, So moral dilemmas are one of the ways we really see what people are about. Right. And of course, you know, as a human being of somewhat advanced years, I've been through a few of my own. And so I probably write about the ones that I identify with more. You know, I don't have strictly autobiographical characters or plots, but the themes that recur are themes that resonate with me personally in some way. So have you heard from people that have used it or that have avoided a mistake by reading Closest to the Fire? I wouldn't say I know of people who have avoided a mistake, and the book only came out quite recently. So what I've heard are readers who said, hey, that's really interesting. Hey, I didn't know that. And the surprise, if you will, was hearing from people who are neither authors nor law students nor pre-law students who just said, boy, this is fun to read. Yeah. It's interesting. It it is a really interesting book. Um, Thank you. I tried to keep it the tone on the light and readable side while still thinking of it as a reference work. I just didn't want it to be a dry slog. Yeah, no, it's really fun to read. Thank Um, you. So did any of the story ideas in there strike you as something that you might want to write in the future? Yes. One of them I had already thought about as a potential nano novel. And I think in the book itself, I say, you know, I might write this someday, but don't let that stop you from writing it. Since ideas cannot, at least in this country, be copyrighted. It's the expression of the idea that is copyrighted. It'll be fun over the next years to see books that, you know, are inspired by Closest to the Fire yeah. I very much hope that people will let me know when they write them, yeah. books, books or stories. Yeah. If you have plenty of time and a comfortable chair, you could just start reading either from the beginning or anywhere else and just plow through. And this is what has surprised me, that the number of people who seem to be enjoying doing just that. But it also has a very detailed table of contents 
and an index. The paperback has a very detailed index with page numbers. The ebook has a linked index to sections and occasionally to individual topics within sections so that it's a shorter index. But if you already know that you want to find out more about a certain subject, whether it's a broad subject like family law or a still fairly broad one like divorce or something much more specific like non-parent visitation, you can find it and you can read about it. You can uh, also look for particularly in an ebook if you are familiar with how to search in an ebook you can look for the story ideas which are marked by double asterisks at the beginning and end and if you're reading the paperback you can just sort of flip through and let those catch your eye mm-hmm. so it can be you know used as a reference work it can be used as just a sort of vast collection of writing prompts just you know close your eyes open the book point to something and see whether it sparks any creative ideas. It's uh, got a lot of flexibility that way. Yeah, and it's great. I read the ebook and I like the way that, that worked. The website is the initials of the main part of the title, C-T-T-F dot Karen A. Weil, my name run together, dot net. Mm-hmm. 